Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Memes, The Guardian's regular Brexit podcast. I'm John Henley. Now, recent Brexit news has been dominated by three big what's. First, what kind of transition does Britain want to bridge the gap between Brexit Day and the start of a new deal on its future relationship with the EU and thus avoid the chaos of a cliff-edge exit? Second, what's going to be in the raft of up to a dozen new position papers that the government has confirmed it's finally going to be publishing over the next few weeks? And finally, what size of financial settlement, or divorce bill as it tends to get called here, will the Brexiters in the government and parliament be willing to pay? Now, here with me to chew over all this and perhaps to conclude that it's all tied up with another much bigger and overarching what, namely what, at the end of the day, does Britain actually want from Brexit? And my guests today, The Guardian's Brexit policy editor, Dan Roberts, Brussels bureau chief, Dan Boffey, and political editor, Anushka Astana. So first then, the transition deal. Now, there was an awful lot of fuss about this last week. First, the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, and his backers, let's call them the gradualists, said there was a cabinet consensus around the idea of a kind of a long drawn out exit, a sort of continuity option during which for as long as three years, the UK would continue to pay into the EU budget, abide by the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice and accept free movement all with the aim, of course, of ensuring a smooth Brexit with as little damage to UK business and jobs as possible. But then Liam Fox and his cabinet allies effectively said there was no such consensus, and there basically wouldn't be one, because accepting free movement and the authority of the ECJ would basically be breaking faith with what people voted for in the referendum. And the official government position, remember, remains that a final deal can still be thrashed out within two years of the Article 50 talks. So, Anushka, first off, if I can start with you, how real is this cabinet split on the transition deal? Where does the prime minister stand on it? And who do you think is going to come out on top? Well, I think there is a split um, to some extent, but it is also true what Philip Hammond said, that there is now a consensus around the cabinet table around the idea that there will be some form of transition. The divide is about what that actually means. Now, Philip Hammond probably doesn't go quite as far as this when he describes it, but essentially would quite like us to stay in a pretty similar position after spring 2019 and possibly within that period still be negotiating a final deal. What the Brexiteers want is they want the final deal to be negotiated by that point. 
but also for there to be an implementation period, you know, a slope, if you like, down towards the final, you know, end line in which companies, etc., do not face a cliff edge. And so that perhaps is what Liam Fox is talking about. And in fact, I texted a Brexiteer minister quite senior yesterday to ask about this very point. You know, are there differences on transition? And they simply replied, it's the same as in the Lancaster House speech. And if you remember, the prime minister in that speech basically said, I want the final partnership to be agreed by spring 2019. And then there will be a phased implementation phase. Now, there is a divide because I think there are more and more people within the cabinet who feel somewhat emboldened by the idea that actually we have to go down the Philip Hammond route. People like Amber Rudd, I suspect Justine Greening is on that side, Damien Green, uh, Greg Clark. And the question is, how much power do they have? I do think it was very interesting that Nick Timothy, Theresa May's former chief of staff, did an interview the other day. It was actually pretty unremarkable in many ways what he told us but one thing he clearly did tell us he's still in touch with the prime minister and he thinks there should be no backtracking on brexit that said i know someone very senior in downing street who thinks the opposite so the truth is theresa may is still being pulled in different directions and i don't know what you think but most people don't really know what her actual view is well i was going to ask about that because i mean do we know where she stands and and also how much clout she carries because i think it's very noticeable isn't it that this whole debate inside the cabinet and outside has been going on while she's been on holiday yeah, well, that, that's very true. A lot of people saying that while she was away, Philip Hammond took his opportunity, although I'm sure it is to at some extent sanctioned what he's doing. Certainly Damien Green, the deputy prime minister, has said that it is sanctioned. I mean, she is not in a strong position. Let's be absolutely clear about that. She lost the majority in that election. One MP said to me when she was standing in front of the 1922 committee of backbenches, he said... It felt like here she was, our prisoner in front of us. And they know that it doesn't take very many people to pull the rug from under her leadership. And there are two big groups in the Conservative Party who could do that. One side, the Brexiteers, a very, very big group of people who tell me that they are worried that transition means you are kicking this into the long grass. Mm. And on the other side, the Remainers, who frankly weren't very strong before that election, but now are big enough to also cause mm. her trouble. Yeah, so caught between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> Dan Roberts, so I mean, the options for this transition deal seem basically to be uh, either continuity, which would basically mean prolonging the current status quo between the EU and the UK, and that presumably by extending Article 50 talks or at least agreeing to keep things as they are until the new relationship is uh, is settled. Uh, second, there's you could think about a kind of an off-the-shelf option, um, which might entail signing up to the European Free Trade Association and then staying in the European Economic Area. Though, of course, there's, there's problems with that that would involve accepting free movement and it would also imply negotiating some kind of customs union arrangement because EFTA, of course, isn't in the customs union. And, and the third option, um, I suppose, is a completely bespoke deal um, cut out completely, especially for the UK. Any thoughts on what's most likely and with the Article 50 clock ticking, of course, what's most feasible? Yeah, I think they look like options inside this weird UK bubble where we're negotiating only with ourselves at the moment. But I think in reality, in the in the bigger world where there is actually someone on the other side of the table that might also have views about this, they really just collapse into into, into one, your first option, I think, which is to continue as we are. The reason I say that is because I think if we, if we spend too long negotiating 
a transition phase to get us to a point where we have a lasting settlement, mm. we just, you know, all, all disappear up our backsides. I mean, this goes round and round in circles and we end up um, spending time negotiating the transition where we could be negotiating the actual deal. And So I think any transition has to be really simple. Um, there is a perhaps a chink of this, what you called the off-the-shelf deal, um, uh, where, where we go into uh, EFTA as a sort of purgatory phase um, and, and we, we accept largely the existing rules. The trouble with that is that even that requires negotiation. It requires the agreement of the other EFTA members, let alone the EU27. Mm. So my personal feeling is that um, uh, the Prime Minister is right to distinguish between transition and implementation phase. A transition phase basically means we stay in while we scratch our heads a bit longer and work out where we eventually want to get to. Um, implementation phase is a much sort of shorter, sharper cliff, not quite not quite a cliff, but a steep a slope, slope yeah. when we do know where we're going, um, which we don't at the moment. OK. Um, and Dan Boffy in Brussels, where does the EU stand on this then? I mean, what kind of transition deal has it said it might accept? And where's your sense of, of where this might might end up? I mean, is the EU willing to, to contemplate the idea of you know a continuity transition where basically everything stays the same uh, for, that, for some yeah. considerable time i mean to be honest that is exactly what they would like um it, they foresaw the idea of a transition period you know, well ahead of the uk the government talking about it seriously um when the uk government was talking about oh we'll have a deal wrapped up in the first two years the eu already saying oh, we're bound to have a transition period we're bound to need one um bound to need one just to get ratification of any deal um, through the 27 European, uh, member state parliaments anyway. No, so the EU have always thought that they, they need one. And the simplest thing is just to slightly budget the end and just carry on as we are um, with the Brits continue to pay in and continue to accept the jurisdiction of the ECJ and all the regulatory and budgetary and supervisory um, instruments. And then Barnier constantly talks about, whenever you hear him in, in a press conference, when he talks about transition period, he talks about how then we can phase the new arrangement in at the end. That would be really quite difficult. If we joined the EEA, then we join the EEA on the terms of the EEA. It's kind of, you know, they're quite set terms. Mm. If, we, if we just continue as we were, budget legally, and, at the end, and have a clear withdrawal agreement with the EU, we can phase in the new customs checks or single market checks at the end, and we can phase in, on the UK side, we can phase in um, restrictions on free movements of people. So that's, that's how they use it. It could be very time limited. It could be no longer, and the European Parliament actually said in their resolution, no longer than three years. Um, the EEA is, is, as we've discussed, is a problem in terms of it's outside the, the, the customs union. Mm. So you'd have to start talking all about, all about Which that. Which might end up and, being just as complicated as... as, as absolutely. And, and as Dan just said, as Dan Roberts just said, you, know, you don't want to waste time mm. trying to think up something brand new. Why not just continue, uh, have an agreement about how that, that three-year period is going to work, when we're going to phase in the various bits and bobs at the end of it. Um, and that seems the most simple way forward for them. Um, Anushka, can I just come back to you for a second? I mean, how acceptable is that going to be um, to um, the, 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 the pro 
Brexit camp in in the cabinet and and in Parliament, it would obviously entail very much uh, um, maintaining the status quo, i.e., continuing to pay into the budget for the time being while this transition period was going on. Uh, it would entail continue to accept free movement. Uh, it would entail continue to accept the uh, the jurisdiction of the of the European Court. How, how might that play out? <laughs> Not very well. Uh, just to give you an example, so the backbench group that essentially represents the Brexiteers, although there are a few Remainers who have come on board now is called the European Research Group and they published a paper recently by one of their MPs, Charlie Elphick, who's the MP for Dover, on um, the question of the customs union um, and in particular the impact on ports like his own constituency. And I thought there was some quite interesting language in it because on the one hand it's very clear that the ERG would see anything like what you're suggesting as kicking Brexit into the long grass. Mm. It would not be acceptable to them. On the other hand, in his report that was signed off by the ERG MPs, he basically concedes that it's almost impossible to think that we would have a deal by March 2019. He points out that there are a lot of political things happening in the rest of Europe over that period, that the EU don't particularly want to get there um, in that time, and that we also have parliamentary considerations here to get through. And, And so the basic argument that he appears to be making is not that we should therefore go down perhaps a sensible transition route in which we essentially stay within the EU or the EEA for a longer period. He's saying we've got to get ready to crash out completely. And I feel that there is a bit of movement along the Brexiteers towards trying to soften people up for that position and that a lot of them would frankly prefer that than a drawn-out process that takes us out. The one really interesting thing that has happened is what's going on in the Labour Party. Hmm. I mean, the Labour Party is in such a difficult position. A senior shadow cabinet member told me they're essentially, they've got a position of studied ambiguity, (laughs) i.e. they don't really know what they're going to say at the moment. You know, they're just kind of taking us along the ride. But Keir Starmer, exclusively to our very own Rowena Hmm. Mason the other day, revealed that what they are going to do is push probably to stay in the single market during transition. And that really does change things because the parliamentary mathematics here means that if the Labour Party is against Theresa May, and we know that there are some staunch Remainers on her own benches, it becomes very hard for her to win votes. Hmm. Dan, you wanted to come in on the question of the Brexiteers. On on Anushka's first point, I I would definitely amplify that, that it seemed to me at first this idea of no deal was a largely... Uh, of, of crashing out with no deal was a largely tactical measure um, pushed by Davis and others because they felt that unless we gave the impression that we had alternatives that we would have no negotiating leverage um, that sort of was 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 undermined by the election result and, and ultimately by the fact that many Europeans didn't seem to believe that it was a realistic option. But I do agree with Anushka that we're hearing a new sense of um, weariness now about crashing out that rather than just sort of threatening it as a tactical measure to give us leverage. This is increasing what people are realising that this is the only way that Brexit might happen hmm. that the, the alternatives as we've just outlined are so convoluted don't, and, and don't really so amount to brexit yeah. they, they don't amount to brexit hmm. 
Hmm. That's slightly alarming idea. Okay, let, let's turn now to this question of um, the the position papers. Um, this was a, a, a big story very re- recently, and and the divorce settlement. Now the, the government denies it, of course, but there have been plenty of voices in the UK and on the continent who who've accused it basically of not really engaging with the substance of of the Brexit talk so far, of failing to put very much on the table. It's only published a handful of policy papers, for example, again. It's a whole raft from the EU side. But now we've been promised a rash um, of new position papers over the coming weeks, um, which should include the UK's position on how to deal with the whole question of the Northern Ireland border, how it would like to replace the customs union, and how it would like to calculate the exit bill, probably without actually naming the exit bill, but at least how it would like to calculate it. And, And speaking of that bill... Number 10 also this week dismissed as inaccurate speculation. Uh, A newspaper report at the weekend that it was prepared to offer about £36 billion, £40 billion or thereabouts, providing the EU agreed to discuss the future relationship alongside Article 50, which of course it's so far refused to do. Dan Boffey, can I start with you on this one? Is it fair to say that the EU has been um, unimpressed with, with the UK's efforts so far? And what do you think might be expected in Brussels from this new batch of papers? Um, unimpressed, yes, to a certain extent, in that they, they, they were quite clear about what Britain wanted before the general election. Then the general election threw everything into into some doubt. Did the UK still want to leave the customs union and the rest? And and what the rhetoric around the bill was all sort of clear um, talk of that we owe nothing um, at the famous Downing Street dinner. Mm. Um, so not impressed by that. But to be honest, the EU have also been playing this up hugely, that the idea that the EU have a, a tradition, a strong tradition of doing this. When they're negotiating with somebody, they like to show up the, opposite, the opposing partner. When during the Greek crisis, um, they would always like to show the Greeks as not quite up to it, not mm. quite up to negotiating the future. And they've done quite the same with Britain. So you, the famous photograph of um, uh, Barnier oh, and yes. uh, Sabine Wyatt, a deputy opposite, uh, uh, David Davis um, and Ollie Robbins, and they've got loads of papers, and the other side haven't got any papers. I mean, they thought that through. They're, they're not daft. This is a, it's a bit of a tactic. Um, that said, there's a bit of truth to it. They um, they fear they feel that the UK haven't produced enough position papers. It's very much the EU way to have a paper from which you can work on mm. uh, and and talk. Uh, it's very important for the EU to have these position papers because they have to get agreement from all the 27. Uh, EU member states, and then write it down, and then all sign off on it. That's why their papers are so important for for them. On the EU UK side, they, when you speak to officials when they're, they're over here, they're a bit frustrated with the EU's position. They say it's inflexible. They so say we don't need to go, um, have these position papers to to make progress. We can talk through the EU's positions and make progress that way. I think that the UK has been, however, slightly shamed into putting out these position papers. Um, the the EU were having lots of fun with it. Um, so the, the, the EU side will be pleased that this has happened. I'll be very interested to see if there is a finance paper, um, which is absolutely what Brussels desperately wants. Mm. And we're, we're very, very fearful that the Brits weren't, weren't going to comply. Um, and that will, that will hopefully un- unlock things um, a bit more when we come to October and sufficient progress needs to be seen to, to be made. Mm. Um, 
but of course it depends what's in that paper. Yeah, we of shall course, see. absolutely. Yes, Dan Roberts, what do you think this sudden flurry of, of activity from the UK side suggests? And, it, and can we read anything into the order in which these papers are being promised, namely the fact that, you know, that something on the Northern Ireland border and something on the customs union, are, we're told, are going to be coming very soon? Well, I, I wouldn't get into the sort of weeds to the extent of trying to work out which order they're, they're produced in. Uh, the, I would also agree with it mainly being for show. They're stung a bit by this criticism that they're all at sea and don't know what they're doing. I think there is also a, a, a tactical um, game going on by the Brits, which is to try and show that everything is linked up together, to try and show that, um, of course, you can't uh, solve the Northern Ireland border question until you know what the customs arrangements are. And, of course, you can't um, uh, agree a final financial settlement until you know when we're finally leaving. And this is a very deliberate pushback um, at the EU insistence that we sequence everything and we deal with Mm. it one at a time. And I had a conversation with somebody who was chatting with um, David Davis only recently about all of this. And he was left, my, my source was left very firmly in the, in the, in, with the impression that Davis sees transition and money as inexorably linked. And the reason being that if they can, if they can push a transition past the current EU budget phase to 2019-20, um, then um, a lot of the uh, divorce bill, quote unquote, um, becomes um, moot because we'll be making these ongoing payments while we're in transi- transition and we will have effectively given notice five years previously so there'll be a lot less uh to pay so it'll be a le- it'll bill. be less of a bill and more of a kind of ongoing membership yes fee. Yeah. and i think that's how davis sees this all shaking out that they'll have one big hurrah at the october um european summit well they'll well they'll do this dance where we say we can't talk money until you've talked trade and the others say vice versa but they do it all at once so that we can all have um safe face and 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 be seen to be um in keeping with the negotiating um, mandates. But effectively, what we'll say is we'll have a transition that lasts for, say, three years, and that'll mean that we'll eat through at least two-thirds of the money you think you want off us. Then you meet us halfway on the rest, and Bob's your uncle, and we're all there. I I think Davis sort of feels that fudge is the way forward. Yeah, Yeah. Anushka, I mean, is that going to be... Acceptable, because I mean, particularly on the question of the of the exit bill. I mean, it's all it's extremely delicate, isn't it? Because the, the Leave campaign famously promised this great sort of Brexit dividend of three hundred and fifty million pounds a week, and and you know, I mean, the EU has been widely reported to be expecting a settlement in in the order of sixty billion or, or, or greater, and and yet we have prominent Leavers here uh, on the radio and, and the television saying really loud and clear that even thirty six billion, which is the latest figure. Uh, to, to, have, to have surfaced uh, this side of the channel, which is a bit more than, you know, a bit more than a half what, what the EU is, is rumoured to be asking for, you know, would be completely unacceptable and, and completely balmy, as, as Owen Patterson said this morning. How, how is this going to play out? Well, I think to some extent it's those very same people who are making the arguments towards crashing out behind the scenes who are saying that something like that would be unacceptable. I think the government itself accepts that there has to be an exit bill and despite denials from Downing Street you know it's the denials I will be skeptical about not the figures that we've heard the idea that we start at 27 and we go up to 36 the question is how can they sell that to people they'll be hoping that expectation management will help because we've been saying that the EU are demanding so much more than that they'll hope that we'll be far enough away from the referendum that it might become more acceptable they might hope to carve it up in a way that seems more palatable for voters but 
you are right. We cannot get away from the fact that a very, very key part of that Vote Leave campaign was the idea that the British taxpayer will be getting a lot of money back. And there are lots of people here perhaps most vocal among them, someone like Chucka Ramona, who would like to talk about the £350 million every day, if he could, who will be ready to, you know, hit out mm. uh, any suggestion <laughs> of what Vote Leave were promising before. Now, what Vote Leave people would say was, hang on, hang on, we were not policymakers, we were campaigners, and, you know, you can't hold the government to that. But it is a very, very thorny area. Mm. Okay, um, okay. Well, to, to wrap it up, then uh, I mean, we, you know, we, we're now well over a year, obviously, since the referendum. Six months, uh, more than six months, since the Article Fifty was triggered. Dan Roberts, in in between the squabbling in cabinet over the transition deal, uh, uh, given this this raft of new upcoming position papers and and the whole debate around the bill, are we any closer to? beginning to see the outline of what might be a, an eventual deal, what kind of, of prospects that, that the UK is actually uh, is actually exploring and wanting at the end of this? I think so. I mean, it seems apt, uh, very common at the moment to quote Churchill, and I can't remember the, the, the exact quote, but something about the end of the beginning. Or uh, yeah, yeah. And I, it feels like we are making some progress. I, I think, um, I mean, I've been very critical um, in my writing of the government negotiating with itself rather than with the EU, but it is an important first phase and arguably one that perhaps should have taken place before the referendum certainly before article 50 was invoked nonetheless it, it is finally happening now and I think um, the behind the scenes, um, as I just outlined to you mm. a minute ago, I can see chinks of, of of how the government thinks it can get through the next few months. So, yeah, I, I, I am perhaps less gloomy than I was at the end of the last negotiating round, which was a total farce. Um, I think at least when we get – I think I think the October meeting is concentrating minds. I think the Barnier strategy of saying, look, we can't go forward unless you, we have some common principles has at least sort of forced – the Brits to start thinking about money and thinking about customs and trade in a way that we were just denying and sweeping under the carpet before. Okay, and Anushka, finally, back to you. Late September, early October, when all this is going to come to a head in Brussels, is of course also party conference <laughs> season. How is this all going to? How do you see it playing out on the on the domestic political stage? I mean, I feel like we're on the brink of an enormous political battle that is about to commence in the UK. It will be constrained by what the EU would or would not accept. But I think with the Labour Party now seeing if there's any possibility that we remain within the EEA or um, some form of it, you know, for a transition period with emboldened voices on that side of the debate across Parliament, with the Brexiteers lining up to push for us to actually crash out completely with no deal. I think there are going to be fireworks to some extent this autumn. And just don't lose sight, I don't think, of the Labour position, which is incredibly important. We did a story recently that did a poll of Labour members and Labour members are overwhelmingly in support of the idea of trying to remain in the EEA, of trying to remain in the customs union, if that is even possible, and of a second referendum. Jeremy Corbyn may once have been a Brexiter, but he is also acutely aware of what his members are thinking. I say 
Who knows what's going to happen? At some point, we could have a general election. And in that case, we could have a change of government. Hmm. Now, it does certainly feel like it's all starting to, to really heat up. OK, well, that's it for this week. Uh, my thanks to Anushka Stana, to Dan Boffy in Brussels, Dan Roberts for joining me here in the studio. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. If you want to get in touch about Brexit stuff, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. And if you'd like to review the pod and be in with a chance of featuring in our weekly podcast column, do please email podcasts at theguardian.com. So that's it till next week. I'm John Henley. The producer is Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.